You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let me invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you were here back in September, I asked you to open to Ephesians chapter 1 for the first time as we began to walk verse by verse through this incredibly rich section of Scripture. And uh, we've been learning that the book of Ephesians is actually probably the most structured book in the Bible. It's very well organized, and it's kind of divided into two parts. And as we began to walk through through it, we learned that in the first three chapters, it was all about these indicative, declarative, vertical statements about God and our identity in Christ. And I told you that the second half of the book is very different. Well, I just ask you to open to the second half of the book as we dive into this. Let me give you a little review as we've walked through it here. The book of Ephesians could be uh, divided into two sections. The first three chapters is all about the indicatives, these declarative statements that are objectively true of God and objectively true of those who have find their identity in Christ. The second half, verses or uh, chapters four through six, are all about these imperative statements, things that you need to do and stop doing based on what the indicative said about you and about God in the first three chapters. So the first three chapters are all about our identity in Christ. The second three chapters are all about our, acti- our activity in Christ. The first three chapters are about our position in Christ. The second three chapters are about our practice. The first three chapters are about who I am. And the next three chapters are about what I do. In order to Remind ourselves of this little exercise. Do you remember some of the things that God said are true about those who are in Christ? In the first chapter, he said, we are holy, we are chosen, we are blameless. So turn to your neighbor right now, look them in the eye, smile, they need that, and say, I am holy. Just do that right now. Now, do you remember what you're supposed to say back to the person that just told you they were holy? Then act like it for crying out loud. And give me all this stuff about being chosen and holy and blameless. Act like it. Well, we finally reached the part where we're going to be told to act like it. It's not now about the indicatives. It is now about the imperatives. Now, when you go to church, it is important that you get the indicatives before the imperatives. Now, in our culture... And our default humanity, what we want to do is we want to ignore God's imperatives. Again, the imperatives are do this and don't do that. Does everybody understand that in the Bible there are some do's and don'ts? There are. But it's important that we get the do's and don'ts in the right order. The culture ignores God's imperatives and it ignores God's indicatives. The culture doesn't really care what God has to say. They want to be their own God and do whatever they want to do. As Christians, we come and we're very concerned with God's indicatives and God's imperatives. But what so often happens is we end up creating this religious, man-made, self-righteous, religious activity that shouts imperatives. How many of you ever went to a church that shouted the imperatives? Don't do that. Stop doing that. Do this. You been to a church like that? You don't go to that church anymore, do you? Uh, You don't go to that church anymore, do you? Okay. 
Because what we do around here is we get the gospel. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel shouts the indicatives and then it ignites the imperatives. Because of what God says about who we are, it radically changes what we do. So we're going to dive into this section of scripture over the next few weeks about some do's and some don'ts. But if you start at Ephesians chapter 4, you are going to fail miserably unless you are saturated with the truth of what was in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And here's what we're going to understand today as we dive into this section. The new series is called Walk Worthy, A Deeper Conviction. Because here's what happens. Indicatives turn imperatives into convictions. All of the imperatives that God says externally you're supposed to do, do this, do that. Listen, when it gets in your heart and in your soul, that's when from the inside out you obey God, not because he said it, but because you believe it and you love him and you want to live a life that is worthy of what he says is true about you. That's when the indicatives turn the imperatives into convictions. Convictions is an interesting word. Now, when you come to church, um, if I do my job right and you do your job right, you should feel some conviction. Do, do you know what a conviction is? The Holy Spirit begins to press those imperatives into your soul and you realize, you know what, on Tuesday afternoon, I really wasn't like what God says I was supposed to be like. And here I am being confronted with the truth of those imperatives and the Holy Spirit brings weight and conviction and it might feel kind of like a pressing into your soul and your seat might get hot and your palms start to sweat and your, your heart starts to beat when you realize, you know what, God is calling me to change. So here's the first area that God is going to convict us about and here's the title of the message. We need to be convicted about unity. Unity. Did anybody notice anywhere in the news this week, anybody talking about the subject of unity. Um, is there a little disunity going on in our culture right now? Um, did anybody watch President Trump's, did, did I just say that, President Trump's um, inaugural address? Did you watch, how many of you watched that? Um, did anybody notice that he quoted a Bible verse? Now of all of the Bible verses available to President Trump, the one that he picked was Psalm 133, verse 1. This is what it says. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You know what? You can be an atheist and say amen to that. Everybody values how good and pleasant it is when there's no strife and contention and fighting and warring and shouting and hating. That seems to be what the whole culture wants, but nobody knows how to achieve it except 
people who are in Christ. And that's what we're going to learn here as we dive into chapter 4 of Ephesians. Let me just begin reading. I have talked way too long before, but without reading God's word, somebody should have already yanked me off this stage. All right. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians says this. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, there's our word, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And let me just tell you, I had prepared to preach a message all the way down to verse six. I tried that last night. I never got to point of the message, okay? So we're going to cut it off right here, and we're going to do just one point message, and here is the point we're trying to make here this morning. Walking in unity requires personal conviction. Walking in unity requires personal convictions. Back up here in verse one, he says, therefore. See the word therefore? That is the hinge word of the whole book. The word therefore connects everything that he said in chapter one through three to everything he's about to say in chapters four through six. It's the hinge upon which the whole book turns. And he says, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, remember Paul the apostle is writing this in a prison cell, because he was a man of conviction. He refused to compromise. He would rather go to jail than for people to go to hell. And so he is writing to the church, those in Christ, from a prison cell because he was a man of conviction. And he wants them to know that because he's about to say some hard things. He says, a prisoner of the Lord, he says, I urge you, this is an urgent matter. It's an urgent matter in our culture. It's the most urgent matter in the church because if we don't get this right, it will destroy the culture. It will destroy the church. It's been destroying families. It's been destroying relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children and employers and employees. This is an urgent matter. Is this an urgent matter? Unity and urgent matter? Everybody understand that? Some of you have some destructive relationships right now. You're in you are enduring incredibly painful relationships because there's no unity. And you're wondering, how do we achieve it? Here it is. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I love the words calling and call here. The only reason I can sleep tonight as a pastor is to know that my voice is not the only voice calling you to walk worthy. If I thought that getting you to walk worthy was dependent upon my ability to articulate to you all the reasons why you should walk worthy, I, I would be insane. The only reason I can sleep tonight is to know that it is God who is calling every person in every seat in this room right now. Are you listening to the calling of God to get you from where you are to where you need to be? I love the word picture here. Did you see it? As a matter of fact, some of you read that and you're so familiar with the Bible that you just let the the most often repeated word picture in the Bible slide right past you and you didn't even think about it. 
What is the most often repeated word picture in the New Testament? We just read it. What is it? Walking. And it's so common, we don't even think about it. Think about the implications of why Paul used this word. Okay, now think about this. Put yourself back in first century Ephesus. Do you understand that Paul walked everywhere he went? No bicycles, uh, no cars, no planes, no trains, not even any sidewalks. If you wanted to get somewhere, it was going to involve walking. And Paul uses that picture to describe what the Christian life is all about. Around here, we like to use that term. It's part of our discipleship philosophy. We talk about a quality disciple around here does three things. He worships Christ, he walks with Christ, and he works for Christ. And so this is, this is not an insignificant word picture here. Just think about what's involved in walking, okay? Um, it involves realizing I've got somewhere to go. I'm not where I should be. I've, I've got a destination ahead of me. And so I've got to start walking. Uh, walking involves balance. Um, and we're learning in, in, in Ephesians that there's a balance between indicatives and imperatives. If you, if you just sit around and think about the indicatives, you're not going to go anywhere. If you just think about the imperatives, you're not going to have any motivation to go anywhere. So there's some balance. There's a balance in the scripture of grace and truth. If you're out of balance on grace... Then, then you're not really interested in the things that need to change in your life. If you're out of balance in truth, then you always feel condemned because you never get it right. You need the grace. And so it, walking involves balance. And some of you aren't walking because you're out of balance. Um, and, and there's, 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 uh, uh, there's balance in the Bible between love and truth. And all of these things are important if we're going to walk. So we, we've got to get the balance right. I... I was praying for our church this week and I was just, when I pray, I see faces of those in the congregation and, and quite honestly, not everybody in the room right now is walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so I began to think about why aren't some people walking? Are you walking? I mean, you need to ask yourself this question. Are you feeling some conviction right now? Are you walking worthy of the gospel. The word worthy obviously talks about value. And so the point he's trying to make is this, the manner of my walk reveals the measure of Christ's worth in my life. When it comes down to it, the manner of my walk reveals the measure of Christ's worth. How much is Jesus Christ worth to you? The more value you place in Jesus Christ, the more motivated you are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, there are some people in the room right now that are not walking worthy because you've never taken your first step. How many parents in the room? How many parents? Where are the parents? Where are the parents? Do you remember back to when you had that first child? You bring them home from the hospital 
and you put them in one place and you come back three hours later and they're still in the same spot. It's a glorious thing. And it can actually deceive you into thinking this is easy, okay? But after a while, all that flab on those legs, remember those chubby little legs, remember those things? Pretty soon that starts to develop into some muscle. And then they crawl over to the coffee table and they kind of lift themselves up and all of a sudden, they're not just laying there, they're now standing. And they're wobbling, you know, and they're trying to get their balance. And then after a while, they, they let go with one hand and, and they realize this thing moves. And they begin to figure out, this can take me places. I, I, I can become mobile. And all of a sudden, dad's on the other end of the room. And mom's got the iPhone out. And we are about to experience this child's very first step. And dad's over there saying, you can do it, come on, I'm just, come on, you can do it, you can do it. And they take one step and then what do they do? They fall right on their face and they scream and they sue you for encouraging them to go places. And, and then, I mean, it's, it's a bad deal. Did you know that there are some people in this room right now that aren't walking because you've never taken your first step towards your father. And this morning, do you hear the father calling you, come to me through Christ? You can't do this alone, but taking your first step to Christ because the father is drawing and wooing and calling you out of a love for the father. You turn your back on where you were, whatever direction you were going, or maybe just sitting there, and all of a sudden, you're moving toward the Father. Have you taken your first step? If you haven't, you're not walking worthy of the calling. Christ wants relationship with you. Your Father wants to restore. Your Father wants to forgive. Your Father wants you near Him. He's calling you this morning, and if, if in Christ you will turn from sin and put your trust in Christ and His work on the cross, you can be reconciled with the Father, and you can take your first step. There are some other people in here. You've taken your first step. You may have taken 10 or 12 steps. You may have walked miles actually with Christ. But this morning, you're not walking worthy. Um, this past week, Andrew and I, um, we, we had some ministry to do in Florida. I know, I know. You, you want another run at that? Just, just go ahead. I, I deserve it. We had some ministry to do in Florida. Yeah, I know. I feel, you feel bad for me. I appreciate that. So um, if you know Andrea, she loves the sun and she loves to get out in the sun. She loves to take walks when we're in Florida. I don't necessarily have any affection for walking, but I do have affection for Andrea. So I walk with Andrea, not because I like to walk, but because I like Andrea. And uh, Andrea is a very hard person to take a walk with. So um, I think it was on Tuesday, we were walking on the beach down there. And uh, the reason it's hard to take a walk with Andrea is because she notices things that I otherwise would ignore. So we're walking on the beach and pretty soon I lose Andrea. I'm like, where did she go? I turn back around and she's back over here and she's, she's knelt down and she's playing with a crab that she found in the sand. And I'm like, I thought we were taking a walk. I didn't know we were doing marine biology at this point. And, uh, and, and 
And then at another place, uh, we, we took a walk on a nice sidewalk in a well-groomed landscaped area, and there's these nice bushes and everything, and all of a sudden I noticed I'm walking alone again, and I turned back around, and Andrea's found a little yellow flower that's, that's fascinated her, and then she found a purple flower over here. And, and for, for, her, for Andrea, walking is a very interactive experience. She, she, like, she notices things. I, for me, it is just all about getting this thing over with, you know, and getting to the place we're supposed to go and burning some calories. So anyway, I, I thought about some people in our church that walk like Andrea. You get distracted with pretty things or, or shiny things. And some of you are not walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called because you have gotten distracted. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your education. Maybe it's a sin. And this morning, God is calling you to get moving again. Take another step. No matter how far you've come, no matter how, how long you've uh, strayed from the path, you, you need to keep walking. There are some other people here that aren't walking because you've gotten tripped up. Um, if you come to my house, you're all invited. If you come to my house, the, the little walkway up to our, our porch, um, it, it has an uneven spot in the pavement. And uh, uh, just for fun, when people uh, are coming up to our house, we like to gaze at the window and see how many people actually trip over this little thing in, in, in have, have you tripped over it? Um, and, and that's a dangerous thing. There are some, some of you that have gotten tripped up and you have fallen. You may have even broken something and, and you're just sitting there, maybe in pain this morning. Um, this past week I was driving home and 10 doors down from my house is the house of Bob and Donna Hogarth. And if you don't know Bob and Donna, they were the ones that God used to, to create the vision for, we wouldn't, none of us would be here this morning if it wasn't for Bob and Donna having a vision to, to plant a, a church in Granger, Harvest Bible Chapel. And, and, uh, I, I drove past their house and there was an ambulance and a fire truck. And I'm like, Oh no, what's going on? I texted Bob and Donna real quick and so what's going on? And, and Bob let me know that Donna had actually fallen and broken her leg. And uh, they did the x-rays and they realized that the reason that she broke this leg is because the other leg had been broken for a while and wasn't bearing the weight. And, and uh, Donna had surgery and, and she, Donna's not going to be walking for a while. She's in rehab. And, but if you know Donna, she's going to be walking faster uh, than most people would because of her tenacity to get back in, in ministry. Have you fallen and been broken and are experiencing such pain that you're not walking worthy anymore? And maybe you're blaming a mother or a father, or you're blaming somebody that abused you or mistreated you or somebody that gave you a dirty look or, or all kinds of excuses why you've broken. Listen, God wants to bring healing. And you may walk from this point on with a limp, but God wants you to walk worthy. No matter what's happened, no matter how much pain, no matter how much brokenness is in your past, God, your Father, is calling you to get back on the path. There are some other people here 
that aren't walking because you've walked so long and so far, you're tired. And in your mind, you're thinking, man, I just don't know if I can take another step. Do you know how hard this life is? Do you know how long this path seems? And you may be somebody of an older generation. You feel like it's time for somebody else to walk. Here, here's a nice park bench. And I'm just going to find a place right here. And I'll just applaud those people that are walking and carrying the load. No, no, no. Your father is calling you to walk worthy of the gospel to which you have been called. There are some other people here and you're walking and the only problem for you is you're walking alone. And he who walks alone does not walk far. Because after a while you see a park bench or you see a flower or you see something shiny and it causes you to get off the path. We walk together because we need sometimes to lean on people and we need people to tell us we need to take another step. And I know you want to give up and I know that you're in pain, but we're going to get to the finish line together. Do you understand the implications of what it means to walk worthy? Are you walking this morning? Are you walking worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's a conviction. I'm going to get back in the walk. I'm going to get back on the path and I'm not going to walk alone. That's what Christ is calling us to this morning. So how do we do that? How do we walk in a way that generates unity? This is what I want you to notice here about verse three. Notice here it says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Everybody's talking about unity and how to create unity. I want you to notice something from this verse. Unity is not something you create. Unity is something that you what, according to verse three? Look at your Bible. Unity is something not that you create, unity is something you maintain because it's the unity of the spirit. You see, here's the thing. The culture is looking for a way to create unity and the reason they have to create it is because they're not bringing themselves under the authority of the spirit which creates the unity when you put yourself under the authority together of the spirit. And so what he's about to give us, what he gives us in verse 2, he actually gives us the ingredients of unity, okay? It's kind of like soup. You got to have the right ingredients to make the soup. You, everybody wants the soup of unity in our culture, but very few people want to use the ingredients that maintain the unity. It's like, we, we, do you like chicken noodle soup? Everybody like chicken noodle soup? Uh, do you like chicken noodle soup without chicken and noodles? Like, so we want the soup. We just don't want the ingredients. We, we, you cannot have chicken noodle soup if you're unwilling to add the noodles and the chicken. Okay? So what we're about to see is five ingredients here that maintain the unity. And the first one is found up in verse 2. So what is it? With all humility. There's the first ingredient. Humility. What is humility? There's a lot of different ways you can define humility, but um, probably the best way to define it is simply this. 
Humility is the attitude that continually acknowledges need. It's the attitude that continually acknowledges need. I have so much unfinished business in my life that I continually have to cry out to God, help. Help, God. I can't go through this day without you. I can't maintain this unity, this relationship without you. And what that attitude does is it strips you of an attitude of superiority over anyone. And do you know how attractive humility is? And do you know how repulsive an attitude of superiority is? And so what is it that destroys unity? It's pride, arrogance, and an attitude of superiority. But it is a humble attitude that says, you know what? I'm going to welcome other people into my life because I realize I'm not better than anybody or anyone and it's that attitude of welcoming. It's that attitude, of, hey, you got, you got unfinished business in your life? So do I. Come on, join the club. And do you know how attractive a church is that has an attitude of humility? And in a, in a culture, in a world where everybody's looking for unity, what a great opportunity it is for a church to say, you got problems, we got problems, we're just coming to Christ with our problems, and if you want to come with us, you are welcomed here without judgment. But how often do people not come to our churches and not want to have anything to do with Christians because they feel like they will be judged because they're different, or because they're sinners, <gasps> or because... They have shame or regret or mistakes in their past. Or maybe they even have struggles with things like gender identity, for crying out loud. Would we welcome people that, that would come with issues that deep? Or would we stand back and say, you're not, listen, not here. Everybody, no matter the race, the color, the age, the gender, or whatever sin baggage you may bring, bring it all here because we are here to bring all of it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a humble church. Hey, anybody see any good movies lately? Um, anybody see any good movies? Um, yeah, so uh, did you know? Did you know? The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, the, the movie that Harvest made, is now in theaters. How many of you have seen that already? Raise your hands. All right, great. Why, why, what have the rest of you been doing with your weekend? Okay, so you're all going to be in the theaters this week, I'm sure. And so uh, um, there's a star in the movie. Uh, did you know about this? Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the whole movie, the, the, the best scene in the movie um, is when, I won't, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Uh, the, the best scene in the movie is, is when the pastor is talking to his pastor's daughter and they're, they're trying to figure out what to do with this newcomer, this outsider in church. And uh, she's not really impressed with him because he's kind of arrogant and has some unfinished business, doesn't know all the house rules. He's not been house trained in church. And so uh, they're trying to figure out what to do with this guy. And, and it comes down to the, the question of this. Isn't this what we do as a church? This is what we do. 
So there's three things. Pastor James McDonald has, has encouraged all of our Harvest pastors to kind of get these three things in front of all of our, our, our uh, churches uh, as, as we kind of go to the movie here. And the first one is this. I will welcome without judgment. And it is a humble attitude that is willing to accept someone wherever they are, no matter what their struggle, no matter what their sin, and say, you know what? You are welcome here. We welcome without judgment when we have an attitude that is humble. And we recognize, I need God. Another thing that God does to keep you humble, he does two things. The first thing we've already talked about, he convicts you of sin. And a humble person, when God convicts them of sin, you know what they do? They agree with God. Do you know what a proud person does when they're convicted of sin? They argue with God. So if you have an attitude of humility, what you're doing is you're welcoming the conviction of God so that you can agree with God, so that you can walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The second thing that God does to keep you humble is he creates circumstances in your life that you can't handle, control, or figure out so that you understand how much you need God. Sometimes that means losing a job, losing a relationship, losing health. Because be honest, isn't it in those times when you are broken that you are most humble? Isn't it in those times when there's plenty of money in the bank and relationships are going right and everybody's applauding and praising you and telling you how great you are that you're tempted to have an attitude of superiority? So you know what God is? God is so committed to you welcoming people without judgment. God is so committed to you being humble he does two things. He convicts of sin and he creates circumstances you can't handle so that you will acknowledge, help God, I need you. That's an attitude of humility. And that's the first ingredient. If we're gonna maintain the bond of unity. Here's the second ingredient. What is it? Look in your Bible, verse two. With all humility, next word. And gentleness. Gentleness. Uh, men, let me just talk to the men here for a minute. How often has your wife accused you of being too gentle? you know what, you're just being way too nice today. Um, you're thinking of me way too much. Uh, you're being way too considerate. You're putting me ahead of you uh, way too often. You need to think of yourself a little more. Uh, that tone of voice that you're using, that is way too soft and tender. Uh, men, uh, are you like me in process of like, I gotta get better at that? My tone, my attitude is not worthy of the calling to which I've been called. Gentleness refines anything in me that communicates harshness. And it's an occupational hazard for a preacher to be a husband who's gentle. Why? Because I want to convince Andrea. I mean, I've got, I got three points and an outline and I got Greek words and I, I and, and so often I'm not gentle. And that's why all of the men need to be here next Sunday night at nine o'clock so we can learn how to act like men who are gentle. So humility and gentleness. And then here's the, the third ingredient, patience. How you doing with that? Like, we don't have time to talk about that. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> when is this service going to be over for crying out loud? Um, how you doing on patience scale? What is patience? Patience 
is your willingness to endure pain while waiting for God. While waiting for God to change me, while waiting for God to change another person, or waiting for God to change a circumstance. Patience is my, my willingness to endure pain while waiting for God to change me or circumstances or another person. So that's another ingredient. And if we're going to be patient, the next thing is this. It says, bearing with one another. You might just write the word down, forbearance. Forbearance. Because you're going to have to encounter jacked up people. And by the way, the longer it takes you to admit that you're one of those jacked up people, the more you've got to go back to the first ingredient of humility. So humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Do you know what forbearance does? It covers the faults of another without striking back. Bearing with one another. And this leads to another conviction that we're going to have. Not only will I welcome without judgment, but I will forgive without limit. And all of these things are embodied in Jesus Christ, right? Isn't that the way that you want Jesus to welcome you? Isn't that the way that you want Jesus to forgive you without limit? And so we as the church are going to walk worthy of the way that Christ has treated us. And then here's the third thing. I will love without condition. And we find that's the fifth ingredient there at the end of verse 2. Bearing with one another in love. Love is the super glue of unity. And love means that I can see the image of God in every person, no matter how jacked up they are. The image of God is stamped on every person, no matter how far from God they are. And I can love them because they're an image bearer of God. Love empathizes with a person's pain, the pain of their past. The most hurtful people are usually the people that have been hurt the most. Hurt people do what? Hurt people. So if you've been hurt by a person, you might want to look through your pain to see the pain of that person and what's been going on in their past. If you can do that, you can love that person, even if they've hurt you. And love pays the price to press through that barrier. And love, listen, love always speaks the truth. We speak the truth in love. We're going to learn that later on in the end of verse, at the end of chapter four here. Love doesn't shave off the hard edges. Sometimes I have to look at a person because I love you, I cannot affirm the way you're acting because the way you're acting is destructive to you, to me, and to God. And I love you enough to tell you that. So we like to talk about how around here at Harvest, we preach without apology. How many of you have noticed that? We preach without apology. Now listen, if we're going to be a church that preaches without apology, we better learn to welcome without judgment. And we better learn to forgive without limit. And we better learn to love without condition. Otherwise, there will be no unity here. Wouldn't you love to come to a church like that? Yeah. For those of you that have seen the movie, The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, there is a movie star in there. Uh, his name is Shawn Michaels. It's his first movie. I know how he feels. 
And um, Shawn Michaels is, is not a, a professional movie actor. He's actually a professional wrestler. How many of you already knew that? <laughs> Some of you are ashamed to admit it, but you knew it. And uh, listen, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of professional wrestler, but humility, gentleness, forbearance are not words that readily come to mind. And yet God can change anybody. Watch this. Shawn Michaels was born to be a superstar. Shawn Michaels is the most decorated superstar in history. But what I am is the showstopper. I was a shy, very quiet kid. No one was more surprised than the people who really knew me back back home in Texas about this line of work that I was in. In the wrestling business, we have good guys and bad guys, or as we used to reference it, uh, heels and baby faces. The opportunity came for me to be a, a heel. As I turned into a heel, and I began to sort of go on this journey of who this character, this gimmick would be, it just continued to grow. And it certainly unleashed in me this, I don't know, this side of where I could just go out there and do absolutely anything. But it came out through, uh, honestly, through drugs and alcohol. It was the only way that I had the ability to show any type of personality other than the shy, quiet kid. We used to say things, or certainly I said things like, hey man, I only party when I'm on the road. Okay, we're on the road 250 plus days a year. Hello, <laughs> you know, I got into wrestling at 19. I hadn't even really found out who I was as a man yet. They all just sort of melded into one and I didn't know where Sean Hickenbottom ended and Sean Michaels began, to be perfectly honest. As if the, the marriage and everything didn't happen fast enough, six weeks after we're married, we find out she's pregnant. And now by this time, she's realized that the little partying that she saw me doing is not just a little thing, it's like he does that every day. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've got nine months to, to clean up. The baby is born on many levels. I can grasp that it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, but I still don't have the ability to turn into this man that I need to become. She's continuing to go to Bible study and she's just changing and I don't know, she, there's just something about her as all this is going on. She's not pushing me anymore towards anything. She's just an unbelievable mom and an unbelievable wife. This one yearning to be a better husband for her. So it's the weekend and I'm getting myself into a little bit of a haze. My son's crawling on me and I can hear him faintly say, Daddy's tired. And for the first time ever, I realized, you know, he's two and he's being able, he can now see that there's a difference in me. And it just hits me like a ton of bricks, like, oh my goodness, he, he sees it now. I mean, I, I, and of course I can flash back to remembering, you got nine months. And all these times of I'm gonna change, I'm gonna change, it's like two years later, three years later. I can't do this anymore. It bothered me so much. Lo and behold, one day I find myself 
in the parking lot of Cornerstone Church. I'm drawn to this place. I know that the good Lord is trying to tell me something, and I know it's in that big building. And I say, look, I'm, I'm looking for a Bible study. The lady looks up at me, and, and uh, I think she thinks at first I'm there to rob the place. This gentleman sticks his head out of his office. He's their computer guy. He says, you can come to mine. And he goes, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock up. I'll give you directions to my house. Well, he tells me, look, Sean, you know, to be a part of this Bible study, you've got to accept Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. You know, do you, would, you, would you like that? And I said, you know something? I think I would. He leads me in the sinner's prayer, and I just weep like a baby. This feeling comes over me that it's like, it's all, they discipled me. Uh, I, I mean, my, my life was never, it's never been the same. And it, 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 you know, I never touched another drug. It's so funny, I came home, I'm like, oh my goodness, the greatest thing ever. I'm driving home, I, I come in the door, I said, honey, I know what it is, it's Jesus, I'm saved. And I tell her everything that happened. She looked at me and she goes, I know. I said, what do you mean? I said, this whole time I said, I've been trying to figure out. She said, look, I, I've known all along. She said, I, I need, you needed to find this on your own. She said, I was just so worried that if I pushed you, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't happen. And then she begins to tell me how all those nights after I passed out, she'd go in the closet, she'd pray for me. You know what I mean? And, I, and of course, ugh, it is, whatever it is, 15 years later, and I still get made. I'm just holding them back. I'm holding them back. When I was a horrific wretch, didn't pine away at me. She went in there, into that closet, and prayed for me. I don't think there's any greater thing you can do for somebody. You know, there are little things here and there, that things that I wouldn't compromise on. There was a time during my career after I went back that they wanted me to go over to SmackDown, um, which taped on Tuesday nights, which would have affected my wife's Bible study and mine. And it was just something I wasn't gonna do. We could cut your contract in half. They do whatever you gotta do. I said, you need to understand, the good Lord's already decided how much money I'm gonna make this year, not you gonna change it, so. He said, look, it doesn't, you know, it's not, it's, it's not, not a big budget. And of course, again, I think it does, it totally throws them off. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'd, love, I'd love to do it. Certainly a faith-based film, it sounds, it sounds like a, obviously a great thing to do. And he's like, all right, well, let them know. And so I think they were, uh, I think they were surprised at the fact that I wanted to do it. Made it even better that the script was really good. I've seen a lot of Christian films. I attend a lot of them. A great many of them, I enjoy some of them, not so much. I know how Christians are perceived. That's what I like so much about this. But I was thrilled, I don't know, just to, to be with a, a different kind of group. To be in my first film and to have it be in a place where I was so unbelievably comfortable, I think was good for me. You know a guy who's lived a bad life and then Jesus come and save him. You can instantly sort of bond over that and you don't have to say too much to one another. Just, you get it. The biggest change for me, I think, is I live a life of gratitude and thankfulness now. A lot of guys that I used to party with uh, are no longer here. I was headed down the same road. It sounds melodramatic, but it's true. I'm amazed at the life that I've been given that I so unbelievably don't deserve. And of course, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I thank you, my King, for saving me. I'm gonna invite you to stand right now.
If you would, just stand there. Bow your head for a moment. We've covered a lot of territory today. We've talked about walking worthy. Can I just simply ask you, are you? Have you even taken your first step? If not, now would be a great time. Open up your heart by faith. Tell the Lord, tired of walking in the wrong direction. Tired of being distracted by shiny things. Today, by faith, I want to trust you. At the end of the service, our pastors are here. and You can come and maybe even physically walk from where you are to where they are and just say, I need to begin a walk with God. I'd love to pray with you, point you in the right direction. For, the, for others ever, you, you know what that's like. You've walked for a while, but maybe something's tripped you up. Maybe something's distracted you. Maybe you've fallen, you've been broken. You're not even sure if it's safe to walk any further. Would you just tell the Lord right now, God, you're worthy of more than that. And I want to take the next step towards you. And take another step. And keep walking. If we're going to be a church that is unified, we're going to have to have a deep conviction about welcoming without judgment, forgiving without limit, and loving without condition. And you may have thought of people right now with whom there's disunity. Could be a spouse, a former spouse, child, stepchild, stepfather, somebody in your family. Could be somebody that's just kind of an outsider. Maybe they don't look like you. They don't talk like you. They don't have tattoos like you. And you're fearful that they're so different that you could, know, you could find no commonality. Listen, would you let your love for God see the image of God in that person and to risk welcoming that person into your circle and into this church so they could hear the gospel? We are all objects of God's mercy. There's never a day that we don't need a fresh batch of God's mercy and grace going to sing in just a moment, but before we do, would you just tell the Lord, God, I need you. It's an act of humility. God, I need you. Lord, today, uh, we declare that afresh and anew. We need you. We need a fresh filling of your spirit. We need a fresh batch of your love. And God, we need to walk worthy of the things that you've called us to. So God, thank you for humble hearts that are calling out to you right now. Would you remind us of your mercy, your loving kindness that leads us to repentance, even as we sing.